it's like hi i'm nick here's my little badge you know this whole time i haven't known your name and i've been afraid to ask because i forgot it and that name tag just saved me so thank you i'm really appreciative of that name tag i am nick Wu of aligni that's we got that one today aligni aligni yes. that's a new one that's a new Love one it. close close not quite close almost there yeah oh how's your guys day going back to backs back to backs baby it's tuesday it's how it goes <laughs> good stuff though it's good stuff yeah this conference was cool lots of really interesting speakers this guy the last speaker is harvard data science review which i've read harvard business review i didn't realize there's a harvard data science review publication as well but super relevant content i I'm really looking forward to reading a lot of the articles that they're putting out like this month too, that he was talking about as well. A lot of it's around, especially the role definition, data scientist, data analyst, data engineer, and really like doing industry studies around that too. So it's good. It's really good. I saw there was a presentation at um, the Data Connect conference years ago of a data scientist doing an language analysis on roles in data science. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's as about as meta as it gets. <laughs> was and they said he himself said this one was a bit of a data science project where they were scraping linkedin they were scraping yeah. job descriptions and everything related to that just trying to get a sense of what is statistically significant around these roles and around definition of them one two three four it was intended for the human to support the machine the machine to support the human and working and ai means something different to anybody you talk to which is wild this is ai or die and it was interesting too, because of course, at an analytics conference, there's going to be a ton of talk about chat GPT and generative AI, but it seems like the like the overall takeaway that folks are having and they're speaking about this is making sure that people say that they used it, but being fine with it being used as a creative tool. Like, hey, give a shout out that you use it as an aspect of what you generated here, but we're not going to stop you from it. We're not going to hold you back like they held back calculators back in the day in terms of being used in the classroom. Yeah. I mean, at the enterprise level, people, and you're talking about education, right? Or no? I'm talking about specifically education, academia, the folks who spoke about it today. Yeah. Yeah. Enterprise. Enterprises are locking that down. For sure. Yep. Definitely. I know we're probably going to touch on that, but. <sighs> Overall, though, friend. I don't know where he went. Yeah. <laughs> See you later, man. I had to get my coffee. Oh. Yes. Yeah. This is going to be an, uh, a late one. Yeah, I know. I, I I need to, I'm on my third cup today, actually, just to get charged up for this and the I drive from Cincinnati tonight, too. Yeah. Oh, crap. That's right. You have to drive back. I know. I'm kind of pissed. I'm missing free drinks right now. There's an open bar across the street for everyone here at the conference. So I'm well, doing you have to drive anyway. I got to drive anyway. So it's a very good point. Instead of <laughs> so he's over there at the open bar, obviously um, getting free drinks. And then I'll pick him up here in a little bit. That's great. Yep. So how's your guys days going? So I'm in Cincy at an analytics conference, um, obviously supporting Allie out here. Um, she had a great talk with Rachel too. That was really good. I can't wait for them to publish more information on that. But what are you guys doing today? What are you at? I had a lot of good heads down time today. Uh, oh my gosh, heads down time today. <laughs> um, also, contract reviews. <laughs> heavy, heavy reading then. Big, yeah. Big literature day for you. For sure. I got my passport renewed, so that was my big administrative accomplishment of the day. <laughs> exciting. We're going international, folks. Alani I is going to go overseas here in a little bit. It's exciting. 
Yeah. We actually have our first international customer already. So we're technically international, but now we'll be resourcing international as well. <laughs> That's a big deal. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm, these these conferences are always, it's such a drag to drive down to Cincy, but I always, I'm happy I did. It just re-energizes me. Like the co topics that are talked about and just the people are here too, and just reconnecting with old folks I know as well is really nice. Yeah, it, it sometimes is really fun just to get in a room in person, feel the energy, you know, have the random conversations with people instead of these like ultra scheduled <laughs> virtual meetings. Hard start, hard finish. Yeah. Over and yeah. over and over again. A lot more whimsical when you're just running yeah. into people and having conversations like that too. Yeah, yeah. agree. Add some randomness into the mix. Agree. Totally. Totally. Well, should we start getting into some of the hot news and trends? Let's do it. I'm kind of ready. I'm excited. There's some interesting stuff that's happening, especially at this conference that folks are speaking about too. And I think the biggest thing that I know came out yesterday that we wanted to talk about was Jeffrey Hinton, you know, big deal at Google wants to obviously qu quit. I see it as really a retirement. The guy's 75 at this point, but um, seems like he really wants to speak openly just about his concerns. And there was a large New York Times article that got released around really his thoughts and his concerns related to that. So did you guys get a chance to read that article? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's fascinating. Um, it's so interesting because I've talked to a lot of people in Canada about like the AI space and yeah. Like one of our partners is in Toronto. Um, another partner of ours is in uh, Canada as well. And they're, you know, they're always talking about like, well, you know, the the birth of AI <laughs> was in Canada. <laughs> Come on, really? They're trying to be like first in flight, but Canada for for AI? Okay. I mean, you know, so this guy is from the University of Toronto. Did well, did his his research there, right? Lives is from Toronto. Um, so anyway, it's just kind of resurfacing on this like advancement in the AI field around neural networks um, that this guy did and, and the fact that he's been at Google for such a long time and um, some of the work that he and others um, had contributed to the field, um, I think is very fascinating. And just looking at the advancements of um, the techniques over time and the the use cases that it's unlocked, I think is super interesting. So um, I don't take, I mean, he's been very clear and I can't tell if it's like more of a publicity thing or not, but been very clear about um, it not being associated with Google. And he just wants to be able to freely talk about some of the implications, which um, is such a fair statement because I think everybody's contributing to that um, now, at least trying to publicly contribute to that conversation, uh, which is definitely a good conversation to have. So um, I don't have any sorts of feelings about it. I just think it's interesting. He, he was very specific to say like, this is not anti-Google, like Brendan, you shared that tweet as a follow-up that he had. Yeah, I was gonna say that was my main reaction. I reading that article, I was like, wow, this is really, uh, it's when I saw, I saw the tweet first, then read the article. So I wanna clarify my frame of reference because um, this tweet basically said, and I can quote this like, Google has acted very responsibly. Um, you know, the article implied that I left so I could criticize Google, but I found that they are, uh, I, I actually left so I could like talk about the dangers of AI without considering the impacts on Google. So feels like it was a lot more of like a neutral move <laughs> or like a really realist, like reasonable thing to say, like, I don't want to have to consider Google when I'm talking about this, where the article definitely had more of that spin. And I see we're, we're getting a lot more of that, like hype, that spin, that how do I make this into this big, AI is scary and companies are 
doing whatever with it. And like, I think that's just kind of the, the days we live in right now is it's in the New York times. So it's a big deal. And there's a lot of like narrative being drawn around this as well. Um, so I just thought it was an interesting like counterpoint of like seeing his actual tweet and what his stance was coming out of that article. Yeah. And like, you know, obviously there was a lot of hype and there still is around the implications of the social media algorithms and the impact that's having on society. And that continues to be, you know, brought up um, at a, from a legal perspective, from a government perspective. And so I think this is just like fallout of the fact that we don't, we can't catch up on standards and policies and, and expectations, societal expectations. And so we're at the whim of these companies and the decisions that they're going to make in the meantime. And so I think that puts the fear in a lot of people as they, as it should. I mean, that is true. So there's probably like that heartstring that people are really trying to tug on to with some of the journalism happening around this. It's just, we are at the whim of, of the decisions being made by these companies until we can catch up, which I know we're planning on talking about some of the stuff that is happening in Europe too, uh, to try to combat that. But it's just, that's where we're at you know self-governed at the moment um and with the pressures of people trying to hold these companies accountable or at least whistleblowing or you know whatever right in hearing you say that does almost strike me as again anti big tech companies like the narrative here being you know don't trust these large tech enterprises in silicon valley we need to figure out how to regulate them but a lot of conversation today at this conference was essentially regulators move very slow so they we're in that in between phase where almost the industry and academia at times wants to really emphasize the speed to actually get something out there and the speed to actually get insights from it but at what toll from an ethical standpoint around if we're leaving it up to the individuals actually building and maintaining these models, there's obviously no central governance around it. And there's groups that are trying to stand that up and, and really define it. But in the meantime, how long is it going to be? I don't know if anybody can say. Yeah. And I think there's been a lot of conversations about this publicly for a while. It's just that it hasn't taken over common narrative uh, for the everyday individual. Um, and so I think that's been a really interesting transition that has happened. Um, but, you know, we are starting to see those conversations come into place. But I will still say, like, so many companies that we're talking to at the enterprise level are saying it's way too early to even think about AI governance, which is so crazy because it's like, I get it from a build perspective. There are people who are building simplistic kind of machine learning models internally have been doing that for years and then have been using them and putting them in production systems. And maybe they're low risk because they're not affecting like all of society. They're affecting things that are kind of operational internal to their company. And so there's not as much of an ethical pressure there. But now there are all of these external systems that they will inevitably interface with. And so, um, and even more so now, because there's going to be a flood of tools utilizing them, and they have to have some sort of stance on it, which I know OpenAI had just released the fact that they were going to push out this kind of business plan, and they they pushed out this feature um, in ChatGBT around in, in the settings that you can actually have it not utilize your chat history into its training mechanism. So, you know, it's it's interesting to see where that's uh, headed. They're reacting to it pretty quickly, I think, um, just given the fact that it's May and they're already talking about releasing um, 
you know, functionality for the enterprise. Uh, I just think it's kind of crazy to hear companies saying that it's too early for them to think about what their governance and control system is going to look like internally. I chuckled today because somebody said to me, we don't have to, today at, a, at the conference, we don't have to worry about governance because none of our models are in production yet. So we don't need to think about like the ethical side of it until it's live in production or it's like, guys, you got to get ahead of it. Like it's, it's not a just wait and see what happens. You have to think about the framework today and get ahead. Or they're going to try to avoid it altogether. So a lot of companies are just saying like, look, we don't, we're not utilizing AI for X, Y, Z. So regulators and compliance, I mean, they're coming at us for some stuff, use of data, obviously data privacy, data usage, whatever, but not yet knocking on our door about the techniques that we're utilizing in the AI space or the use cases that we're leveraging AI for, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah, I actually noticed that was an interesting thing back when we worked with some of the banks. They would avoid like the traditional predictive stuff inside of the sensitive data like bad example, but like whether or not to give somebody a loan, right? Because that's highly regulated space. We actually heard this recently too, where they're avoiding those high regulation, like scrutiny areas. And so what actually opened up was more of like internal compliance stuff of like checking people's emails, checking their message history, things like that for any insider trading or like anything that's un uncompliant. So it was actually like AI for compliance use cases was actually more approachable. So it's kind of this interesting, like, oh, AI, is it going to make us like more biased or more unethical? And it's like, well, it's actually helping implement and scale up what you can't really do usually around ethics that exist today. Um, so one of those interesting catch-22s. That's where we're getting a ton of interest from like cybersecurity teams approaching us just around, hey, can you help us navigate AI and how it's being integrated into the enterprise? One, cyber-specific tools that we should keep in mind as a central team that could help us and optimize our performance, but also other tools that business users, maybe in sales and marketing, might be bringing in that introduce vulnerabilities to our organization as well. So it seems like top of mind for them especially. Yeah, I was just at the um, ISSA Cyber InfoSec uh, conference. I was speaking about data and AI capabilities inside of the enterprise and, and why cyber teams should care about the procedures that their associates are, are leveraging. Because right now they're just, they're not centralized, they're not consistent and they're not documented. So from a cyber perspective, that's, that's a risk um, that there's even variability across how people are doing what they're doing. Um, and there's no reinforcement and there's really poor adoption of a lot of those um, policies and procedures. So you know, brought that up because I think that's really interesting. The cyber world leans really heavily on frameworks. Um, NIST is one of them, and they obviously posted or published that AI kind of governance or risk framework. Um, so I brought that up uh, as kind of a parallel for them to, to look into and consider. Even looking through some of the, um, you know, uh, legal documents that I look through so that we can work with some of our customers uh, they'll explicitly call out data security and um, adhering to a specific NIST uh, framework um, just to ensure that their vendors and their suppliers are compliant with uh, a lot of these, um, you know, uh, regulations, basically, or, or they're compliant with the frameworks that they've considered to be kind of their, you know, stamp formal stamp of approval. So anyway, it was just it's just really interesting because now we're getting into this territory where cyber teams are being asked 
a lot of them um, being asked to weigh in or provide some stance for the organization on what the guardrails are going to be and what guides you know the company should really follow and i think at first which most companies have done is just kind of lock everything down and try to control access and control the way that people are interfacing with some of these tools um, and figure out you know just buy them some time basically to figure out what their approach is going to be but it is a fast approaching issue um and to your point nick like a lot of these cyber teams are just trying to really understand the level of or the layers of complexity in this space like what should they be thinking about are they thinking about everything in the landscape and the ecosystem and um and that's a huge challenge like we've been approached as you mentioned to provide some even foundational kind of workshops or education for cyber teams to give them a 101 on the basics of AI so that they can feel like they have a good foundation coming into these conversations. Um, but it's definitely coming for a lot of these teams. Yeah, and to your point, Lou, I know you mentioned like people aren't starting with this up front. I think a trend that or an opportunity that we see is there's new ways that are working that are coming into the team, right? And there's the piece where you need to like teach them, upskill them, have them be able to do that. Some teams are prioritizing that, some teams are not, right? And then the next piece is this definition of process, documentation of that process, really like structuring clearly how they should approach that. And then the third layer is kind of that governance piece of we need to generate audits, we need to have procedures documented so that when we go talk to regulators, like we have the data we need to have for that conversation. And I know some teams don't see the need for the upskilling as much. And they might not see like the governance need yet, but I think that middle layer is very important because that's usually what's going to help you with like troubleshooting the operational pieces, the efficiency of your team, like a lot of those critical components of when you're going from one to 10 models in production, right? Where you are trying to make sure everything's put in place the same way, you understand how things are structured, right? So that middle layer and that documentation, how-to articles, things like that, that can kind of go by the wayside really the design of those processes, less so the capture, that's important too, but really just having a clear process that your team is following, I think is really critical right now. So even if teams are not seeing the governance stuff come up yet around AI, having a solid foundation that helps with the operational piece is still a good use of time right now. Yeah, we're so hearing such interesting terms um, in a lot of the conversations we're having. Like I heard job aid today. Like I know that's not a new term, but like it was thought about in the assistance of doing my job. And it's not, we don't have to like, you know, get lost in the, the details of documentation per se, but just think about what is this job to be done? Like, what are we trying to accomplish? And I think that is rapidly changing. I mean, talk to any company that's doing a modernization effort around their data, you know, they're, they're basically saying that all of their associates are going to undergo this like fundamental paradigm shift on how they work with data. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that means that they have to do a new job. Like they are doing something differently. They're used to working with data. They don't need to learn what data is, but they need to learn this new paradigm shift. And that is non-trivial, especially as you're migrating to a new tech stack. Um, that they have to interface with. They, they're going to try to apply the same paradigms to the new tech stack. This is what a lot of companies did during the cloud, you know, migration 
uh, era, they were trying to apply their configurations for on-prem to the cloud. And it was just a fundamentally different paradigm. Um, and so they have to, they have different ways of doing it and they have to be familiar with those way, of what those new ways are and how to interface with the technology. It doesn't mean you don't know what you're doing or you don't know the core concepts in the space. It's that that workflow is so drastically changing because you're trying to move towards something that's more effective. So I think documentation gets lost in the nuance of all of that, um, which is, uh, which is sad. Um, because it has such a bad connotation associated with it, because we're all used to sitting down and like typing everything out all the time. But that landscape is changing, which is so fun and interesting. <laughs> like we're getting to that point where that's not how you have to do it anymore. Um, so I just, I find that to be really fascinating. I think it's all related. Um, and I, I'm, the new phrases that people are saying in these conversations are really triggering new ways to communicate it, I think. Yeah, I heard a term today, practice-centric education, which I absolutely love, where it's here's our practice of data ingestion in a way and documentation being such a key aspect. Maybe education's not the best word, but it's essentially here's our practice. We documented this practice in a way for folks to basically reference it and practice it consistently in their space too. I know we have Mr. Gordon calling in. Hey, Pete. Excellent. Hey, hey Pete. what's up, man? Hey, hey, hey. Wow. So we have a very special guest today. Uh, Pete, thank you so much for joining our podcast, AI or Die. Um, we're, let's just spend, you know, the next 20 minutes just talking about what you're seeing. Just want to thank you again for taking time out of your day. Um, could you first start off just by giving an introduction of yourself for the folks who are listening today? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Uh, it's great to be here. My name is Pete Gordon, and uh, I'm a software guy. Uh in the central Ohio area and um, have been for quite some time. You might be able to tell by the little bit of gray on the tip of the beard. Um, but uh, yeah, software development, software architecture and uh, deep into data engineering and got dragged into the AI machine learning world about eight years ago uh, to kind of build on kind of statistics that I had in my uh, couple college degrees, a little bit of, but not fully. And um, I've been doing that kind of on and off in addition to software development and architecture for quite some time. And then more recently, uh, which is the reason I'm here, got dragged into these large language models. I was doing NLP um, back in uh, 2016 and um, kind of traditional chat bots and Google Dialogflow and IBM Watson, which was all the rage, uh, Watson Assistant. And uh, more recently, um, OpenAI is... Uh, is where it's at and we'll see if Bard comes along. So there's a little bit about me. Nice. And I feel so rude having you go right into an intro. Where are you at? How are you doing today, Pete? What's new with you? <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for asking. No, I'm doing great. I'm I'm in a hotel and about to freeze to death next to the air conditioner um, <laughs> in Chicago. Um, I'm actually up here for a, a conference put on by the uh, um, Institute International Institute of Analytics, the IIA group. Uh, in Chicago, they have a symposium this week, and I'm I'm up here for that. That's are you, awesome. Yeah, are you just attending? Are you speaking at all? I'm just attending. Yeah, I'm like I'm part of their expert network and have done uh, um, some uh, consulting in their expert network related to large language models. 
and up here and other things, identity resolution and um, visualizations and such. And then uh, I'm up here to meet some of those people I've talked to over Zoom, just like this. So hopefully in, in real life. So I'm curious what kinds of questions you're getting over and over again from folks around LLMs in general. Like we talk a lot on this podcast about some of the like societal implications, the way people are thinking about it. Like, but I'm, I'm curious, are you getting more technical questions or people trying to like wrap their brains around what it is or are they more so thinking about kind of the user experience side? Yeah, actually, that that's great. I heard like kind of three parts to your question there, like technical, like versus like business versus like, you know, UI and user experience. Um, I, I think they're almost all like business goals. Like, what is this? You know, how am I going to use it? Um, some questions that even go specific down into um, just like the ethics of it. You know, can we trust it um, from a large language model perspective? Um, a lot of um, people are starting to ask about policies, right? Like internal to companies and and issuing those. Um, but most of the conversations I've had with larger enterprises have been around, what is this thing? And, and really um, giving them context, kind of like I did a little bit in my intro there, to traditional natural language processing and how um, it changed um, with... Uh, Transformers and BERT and attention is all you need um, over the past handful of years and what it means today, like with GPT and, and others. Um, Do you mind explaining what attention is all you need to the listeners too, just so they yeah, have Yeah, yeah, sure. Attention all you need is a, is a um, paper that was written by some people at Google, I think Stanford too, but um, mostly Google. And uh, it started this transformer revolution. So before in natural language processing, the kind of state of the art was a thing called LSTMs, long short-term memory. And it was two recurring neural nets, um, encoding and decoding, went back and forth to give us better. And it was really translation, like English to Japanese, Japanese to English was like top notch, like 2012 kind of time frame, you know, 10, 11 years ago, like this kind of really started, I think from, and it took a hold like 2014 time frame, somewhere around there. And then I think it was 16 or 18. I can't remember. The attention is all you need came out. And that introduced the world to, instead of this LSTM and two traditional or recurring neural nets with encoding and decoding, um, it introduced transformers um, and doing neural nets based on transformers. And that, uh, just change the game, you know, and I'm not a mathematician, so I'm not going to like get, even pretend that I can explain it. Um, I have had uh, conversations over beers on what are lie groups and um, and functors um, with with profession, professors in mathematics. <laughs> and and I'm still trying to grok it. I'm still trying to understand it. Um, but Transformers was kind of the the big thing for these huge parameterized models that we're seeing with GPT two, three, and uh, and now released to the world as ChatGPT. Yeah, I think um, it, again, I'm also not going to try to explain it because I'm not a mathematician. But um, some of the things that I was reading in terms of the big paradigm shift that happened with transformers was along the lines of the recurral, the recurring neural nets having to do things sequentially, whereas the transformers did not have to do. Uh, like the processing sequentially so that opened up the ability for better compute uh, like more efficient compute uh, with the algorithm um, and more dimensionality or capabilities around that as well 
um, which I think is really interesting because when you look at like, man, that's a big shift. And like, we all just like, well, most of society got exposed to it like in November. Yeah. And, um, and like you said, this has been happening, like the research for this specifically on Transformers has been happening since like 2018. Um, and so there's a massive iteration happening in a short period of time, which is I think where most people in the field are getting a little uneasy. So what are your kind of like general opinions on that? Or like, have you heard, um, have you heard people asking about that specifically? Like, is this going to get out of control really quickly? Um, well, I, depends on what do you mean out of control? I, I've, I've seen the rumors, right? Like the discussion amongst the field in terms of data science and um, AI machine learning and everybody trying to kind of catch up like with the large language models um, and how does this impact um, kind of the traditional supervised learning, right? Approaches, um, which I, I mean, are still good. They were always good on a, a kind of a case-by-case basis, right? Applied applied statistics um i don't know <laughs> it depends on where you're going with that like are people scared of their jobs um i think every programmer and writer is right now a little bit um yeah it's kind of interesting how it goes back and forth like some people say it's it's gonna have little impact um and you can't trust all the codes that's out there i was just having this dialogue on linkedin uh with programmers talking about it taking over um and others are just like programming is no longer a career I can do until retirement. Um, so, but that's more on the, like the program side, program side. And I've seen some worries and concerns expressed on the data science, right? Side and statistics side. Um, I think they're both kind of unfounded. Um, I think that I do, I say that, but I, I want to say that I do think that this is, this is a shift like equal to um, mobile applications in like, 20, 2008, 2009 kind of time frame, kind of BlackBerry to touch, like full touch with um, iPhones and Android devices. Um, the other one before that, I think, was kind of like a, a cordless wireless revolution. It was like 20, it was 2003 um, that everybody started. I remember I had this like Apple like spaceship, which was my Wi-Fi router in the house. And it was like everybody got Wi-Fi in their house in like 2003. And then you look at the internet as I like to put like 2005 kind of on the internet. Um, as far as I think Netscape went public, uh, I think in that year, um, I'd have to double check, but it's kind of like internet, cordless, mobile. And then now I think we're talking about another like revolution um, just because it changes the way humans interact with knowledge um, in a way that I think is fundamental. I know I'm not, I'm kind of going off like philosophically. I think. No, it's great. I think because that's the major concern too that we've seen a lot of people talk about is this, how humans interact with knowledge piece. Yeah. Like is, I mean, the misinformation has the ability to, to generate more misinformation, which we've already been struggling with, um, you know, societally. So uh, I think that's definitely one of the bigger concerns that people are are fearful of and then knowledge workers who always considered their jobs to be secure <laughs> uh, are probably now also fearful about what gets replaced and there's this idea of like replacement versus acceleration and enhancement and how many people can make that shift and what does that enhancement level us into um, and so as you're talking to some of these companies and they're asking like what are the implications on us as a company like, what's your response typically, or what is a general response? Um, so, I think the impl 
implications are 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 kind of jumping the gun a little bit like we don't know is is the right response there like i think the initial response like that needs to happen from these companies um is kind of a, a, a typical like piloting approach like where are the potential uses where are these where is this capability able to to better right the way that we work and the company works um I did notice in I had one large um, kind of group session uh, across multiple companies, and I was a little surprised um, that there was it was about um, about a dozen companies represented, and only a couple of them, like one maybe one and a half, kind of um, had had e exposure. These were um, primary analytics leaders too, and they um, had exposure to. Uh, um, to the uh, natural language processing kind of previously, right? So Dialogflow and chatbots and Watson Assistant, like I mentioned earlier, and um, other spot framework for Microsoft. It's been around a long time and such like that. And they seem to be right at that stage of needing that piloting, right? Like how do I find the right business cases to pilot this and begin to taste it? you know, begin to get a value out of it, like that I can say, okay, I understand it. I understand the parameters involved, the scope um, and what, how it might be useful and um, where it might go off the rails. Um, and, uh, and that seems to be, I think, where they're at right now. Um, and not even yet taking the steps. Like, we'll see. I, I'm expecting them to start taking steps and I'm seeing a little bit of it, um, but it's embracing it to, to pilot it. Um, and how it can be effective. Startups are going nuts, like mm. with embracing it, like yeah. this whole hog, right? <laughs> they're like, give me more AI. Give yeah, me more there's so much pressure from the venture world on startups to, to become more efficient, especially in the macroeconomic environment and to reduce OPEX wherever possible. So I'm sure there's a knack for curiosity there, but there's also... <laughs> somewhat of an external pressure. And, and with these enterprises waiting to pilot, Pete, like, are you getting a sense of like, what are the key hurdles that they're seeing that's stopping them? Is it like analysis paralysis? We don't have the team ready to go. We don't have the stack that we need to do this. Like, are you hearing common themes around where we want to pilot, but we are waiting to because of this? Yeah, I think, I think, well, I think that, so I think there's kind of like two responses to that. One is, um, I think that, like the one and a half, you know, kind of the the two, the ten percent, right, roughly, right, that that had already ventured into NLP, right, from an analytics perspective. Um, I think they kind of are getting their world shifted because now it's like, hey, wait a minute, what's this large language model stuff, and how do we ex exercise that? Um, the others, I think, are are just yet to take the the steps required, and it might be like technical limitations. Um, is kind of what I'm picking up on. Um, overall, though, I would say that they're all very excited about the opportunity to leverage this for their group, right, within the company. So the idea that they can, like, carry this flag, right, into executive leadership meetings, right, and and be involved in this is is definitely nothing but up in terms of the opportunity, right, for them to to leverage it for their own groups and to start to apply it to other business units, right? Where they can show their value. So 
that was probably the biggest takeaway right from the group was you know there is nothing um holding them back right from taking this flag and running with it right in their organization and uh I think that right now it's just a a limitation of okay let me figure this out exactly and and how do I approach it in terms of a business sense? And do I have the technical capabilities to like leverage this? I think that's really interesting because like a technical capability right now, and there's been some shift like over the past, especially with GPT and um, the chat API versus the um, um, conversation APIs, which have kind of separated and moved away from, but there's really only like two APIs at OpenAI that really matter right today. And that's the the chat API and what's called the embeddings, like for fine-tuning, or it's not fine-tuning because I don't want to confuse that with the fine-tuning API because that's an older one um, where you actually upload your data into OpenAI. But the embeddings and the chat API are like the two that matter. And embeddings is, hey, I want my data to be able to look at it for similarity across the, the vector similarity database, right? Which is everybody's all excited about. Like this whole vector similarity search, everybody's going nuts on it with embeddings. And um, I tell you what, like uh, I never, I, I was first introduced in embeddings in natural language processing, like more like word to vec was what I understood. Um, but I was introduced to the concept of embeddings with a coworker uh, four years ago, I guess. It would have been around that 2018 timeframe maybe 2017 even, and I never truly grokked it. But now, like with this um, API available and using embeddings with the large language model, like it's starting to like, it finally made sense, like how you yeah. do cosine similarity and leverage your own data and then use the prompt engineering techniques like with your similarities to like actually get natural language interfaces that are are really productive for your own specific area of work, your business domain. And um, Reagan mentioned um, kind of user interfaces, I think is is what she said, or conversational interfaces. I think that hasn't even been touched yet. And I'm super excited about that. We have, I have one project, uh, a group I work with called Tublian, and they help like emerging developers, like junior developers, people that want to get into software development. And they do GitHub issues in relationship to your developer profile. So they find open source projects that have outstanding issues that your profile matches to such that you could contribute in those open source, right? So and, cool. uh, and participate, right? Yeah. And these are for people globally that want to participate in software development and, and increase their software development skills. Um, I think that's a great like use case, but I bring that up because like we are literally right now having that, or I say right now, right now we are wanting to have that conversation about the user interface and what is, you know, when I, when I stick up, when I stick a chat on in front of somebody, how am I really interacting like with their goals in relationship yeah. to the system, right? Yeah. Is it just open-ended entirely yeah. or is there a way to direct and, I think and, what's so interesting is that it has been open-ended because they're trying to figure out what sorts of clever patterns are people coming up with to try to get it to do what it wants to do. So if you if you could just explain embeddings like at a very high level for folks to give them the paradigm to think about like why this is important in terms of engaging with. Sure, sure. Yeah. So embeddings, the embeddings API, the one API that is called embeddings at uh, OpenAI 
is effectively, I have a lot of my unstructured documents or unstructured text, and I'm going to be able to logically like divide it in some way. So it might be like the GitHub issues, right? Each of those issues, right, has some logic to it. And then we might even split those apart, right, by a certain number of sentences or paragraphs or whatever. And then each one of those is thrown up to OpenAI. And with their large language model, it will give us back um, a vectorized uh, um, value with each of those. And that allows us to like start looking at similarities with other natural language. So when you type in a search or you type in a paragraph or whatever it might be in terms of natural language, then you go up and you get the vectorized value of that. And now you get cosine distance between those. Those then bubble up to the top based on the, the similarity it's called. And that bubbling up allows you to use that then in your natural language prompts against the chat API. And this is where you get specialized domain knowledge, right? Your knowledge base into the large language model so that it starts to know how to respond to things. So it can yeah. actually respond with your, your business knowledge, your policies, your, in that example I gave, the your GitHub issues that are most similar to your profile, right? And these vectors are basically numerical representations of that language in the space of the language that the model was pre-trained on. Correct? That's right. That's yeah. right. That's so right. So that's how it creates it. That similarity that you're talking about is how close in this vector space is this language to all of the language and provides a mechanism for it to compare similarity of language. That's right. And and usually use it with uh, the question of like search, right? So then you have some language associated with search and then that's factored in as a vector like space it gets a vector for where it is and then now you can look across yours and see how similar it is right your data to what is being discussed now or being asked now or being searched for now and you can do that with anything it doesn't have to be necessarily something searched for you can even do it amongst itself right to find out like maybe even the scope of a certain domain of policies right within an organization yeah and i'm curious if you see that's kind of the biggest opportunity, right, as enterprises are looking to use this, because obviously, ChatGPT, it's, you know, generally been pre-trained, right, on the broad internet. Yeah. Is that be a lot of what your enterprises are asking about, like, how do we make this more specific to our organization, or kind of what requests are you seeing on top of that general foundational model? Um, <laughs> It might be a yes, it's coming. <laughs> it is more me making them aware of it. Um, than them asking. I mean, they they absolutely are asking the question, like, how do we approach this and how can we leverage this, right? Um, and then making them aware of maybe areas like, um, I mean, imagine like all of your business processes, right? We're actually um, in this vector space, right? So it's vector vectorized um, such that you now are able to search across them and compare between them in terms of similarity, right? You can start to like see potentially the codification, if you will, right? The quantification, codification of your business processes in a way that you couldn't previously. So you, you could start to see where ambiguity like truly is, right? Um, and where things are, are more concrete in terms of their relationship and the similarity. So they, 
I think they're they're asking, but it's still at a very high level, right? Like, I mean, I know they have asked me like how they can apply this, um, but they're still just trying to get their heads around what it is, right? Let alone how to apply it. And that's where I think I expect the piloting to like really take off probably like the second half of this year. Um, I think this first half of the year is more of them just the first two quarters, just trying to get their head around it. Yeah. And what I love about the way you're talking about this too, it's like what it is and how it works at the highest level without diving too far into the weeds on how it does what it does, I think is so important to understand what use cases can be applied to it because then you understand the general function that you're working within. Um, it's so hard. I think that's what, what's so hard for a lot of these groups. Like you've got innovation teams at, at their companies thinking like, oh my God, we got to jump on this. Like, what do we do? And, you know, it, it can be kind of technical to, to explain how it works right now. Um, there was a really good article from um, Cassie Kozarkov recently that was basically talking about how AI used to be buried in the guts of a product. And this is the first time that people have been exposed closer to the, like engaging with the model in a more yeah. transparent way, uh, sort of, uh, or a more direct way, I, should, I guess I should say, um, which is what's driving so much excitement because the possibilities are endless for people thinking about how, how, how they could leverage this and the use cases for it. So um, yeah, I do think it's super important to understand to your point, what is it? How does it work first? Um, and, maybe at a deeper level than just a generative pre-trained transformer, like as the language itself. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's so interesting. And I agree, the pilots are gonna be really fascinating too. It was, I worked, I did a um, initial testing with GPT-3 um, in, I guess it would have been mid, um, early 2021, um, might've been late 2020. and. You know, it wasn't like using the playground from OpenAI. It was not effective. We were trying to accomplish at that point. And I heard a quote from uh, uh, Sam Altman about um, the CEO of OpenAI about how nobody really produced the interface, right? That they ultimately did produce with ChatGPT. And they were kind of like waiting for somebody to do it. And I don't know if I totally agree with that because I, I know there was one, I can't remember the name of the company that does it for writers. It starts with a J, I think. And um, it seemed like people tried, but it seemed like the playground just wasn't there, like either, like with GPT-3. Like, and I, I don't know what the disconnect was for the, the kind of like the two and a half roughly years, the two years, right? Like between like kind of 2020 and 2022. But I tell you what, this, this, like putting it in front of people, like you said, so that people could just touch it and experience it at every level, right? Not just AI people, but anybody was a game changer and game changer. And I like to describe it in how we interact with knowledge, like on the internet, like it's a game changer for that. I heard so many discussions today around prompt engineering, which is I'm sure you're familiar with as a term from years Absolutely. ago in the general public now of like, okay, our folks are using this. How do we teach them foundational prompt engineering principles so they can use it and integrate with it correctly? Yeah. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard 
I've, I've got mixed emotions on both sides. I've heard um, one side, <laughs> I was sitting with um, some people in, in discussing this, I don't know, a month ago or, or more. And one of them said Google Foo um, as as kind of described okay. what prompt, prompt engineering skills are. Um, on the other hand, um, when you when you really go through the the literally infinite the the as expressive as the English language human language is right not only English but um, as expressive as the English language is so is expressive the ability to prompt engineer right so it's it does seem like something a lot more than um, how to use quotes and minuses and cite right on on the Google Foo side. Right versus uh, actually being able to just whatever I can express in English, um, there is a a probability that it will um, uh, direct right the the outcome of interacting with a large language model. And yeah, it's uh it's definitely I don't know that it's necessary. I don't I, I haven't really landed yet. If it is, I, I don't necessarily believe it's a role personally, um, a prompt engineer, um, just because I think software engineering or software development or, you know, <laughs> code scripting or script kitties, you know, like, um, you know, like, like the way we like nuance distinctions, like in building software and creating with software, um, has existed for a long time. I don't know that they're needed that much because there's like, there's a fundamental, like, logic, software engineering, breaking tasks down, having the tool structure and the repeatability to build, right, in tasks that is just always been there and always needed. And that's kind of how I view this kind of prompt engineering. It's just, it's with language rather than so, code. One more question for you um, before you drop off about auto GPT thoughts yeah. on like the the productivity gains or the fundamental difference with auto GPT and these agents and yeah um against what we were exposed to yeah so what the question is is like what do I think about agents and this kind of bringing together like the plugins and yes. auto GPT to do like scraping I mean really what this is is just the expansion right of this large language model into the internet itself to be able to pull more and to do more um I'm I'm excited about it I uh, I've been working with someone who's working closely on the lane chain side and likes the flexibility of like swapping things in and out if anybody's familiar with that SDK lane chain but um, and the auto GPT is interesting and I'm huge. Like, I think you, a couple of you might know I'm big into the, the internet and scraping and things like puppeteer for like driving automation, like on the internet. Um, I actually see that as just kind of expected. Um, it's exciting. Right. But I think this is more like the traditional, just even automation. Like uh, here, I'm going to use that crazy like kind of I was about to say stupid like enterprise buzzword like RPA like you know in a robotic process automation you know like is it auto GPT or is it is it RPA I, like it kind of feels like I don't really care like <laughs> like the big piece for me is the language and the, the 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 power to create that we have now with language and if we want to call that 
prompt engineering combined with automation, if we want to call it auto GPT, right? Um, the ability to use language and combine it with this automation is an absolute game changer, no matter what words we use to describe it or no matter how we we wire um, the, the sources together. Yeah, that's so great. I uh, it, Well, it's just so interesting because when people are talking about the catastrophic effects of this, they're talking about the access that the systems can get or people yep. can hook up access to these systems that can create, you know, catastrophic because it, it's just a model until it can actually action on something and create consequences yeah um, it actually gets and that's that's our next our next dialogue we're going to talk about the control on the internet when it comes to automation and when it comes to when it comes to knowledge and automation control on the internet like there's another piece here that i'll say i've been expecting for a long time a very long time to enter into an api economy I feel like we've actually just cracked the door to that probably in the past few years, right? Because people have finally gotten to the point that it starts to be regular in terms of API, but there's tons of issues around control and ownership and, and who, who's calling what, or who is getting called right with web hooks versus like API and web services. I think that issue of control is yet another thing that we see, right? With, now we've got language, we've got language interfaces, we have automation, automation, we've always had this issue of like, control, like, where is the data? Can I get to it? Um, it just moves to a, a much better and higher level of abstraction. It's no longer your, you know, Postgres database, it's, it's the actual information source or whatever that entity is that's out there that owns it. Fascinating. Pete, thank you so much uh, I, for your time today, for obviously your insight, and you're just so well-spoken. I feel much smarter just through sitting through uh, <laughs> this conversation with you. And and you're our very first podcast guest. So thank you so much for just I, helping us get this going. I am honored. It's my pleasure. I love seeing you guys here and love working with all of you. So it's been a, a blast. And I uh, thank you so much for having me. Of course. Yeah, Pete, thanks, Pete. Thank you. Appreciate it. I'll see you guys. Bye-bye. All right, gang. So that is episode four. Any additional thoughts, Reagan or Brendan, that you guys want to discuss before we wrap up today? That was great. Yeah, that. I mean, obviously, we got into a little bit of the technical weeds, which was great because I actually think that that's so necessary. Um, you know, there's there's definitely a huge need for a general understanding of what's happening and a breakdown of how how this thing works and how you can engage with it. Um, I think AI is more expansive than just this too. And, you know, obviously it's being talked about in this vein, but yeah, it was good to get like a, a high level overview of what kinds of conversations he's having with some of some enterprise leaders about this. Agree. Brendan, any additional thoughts or reflections? Yeah, I'm just really curious to hear coming out of that conversation more about like prompt engineering, because now I've, I've been like hearing it a lot as a buzzword, but I know like deeplearning.ai just released a class targeted towards developer that's available for free. Um, I'm also reading a book right now from O'Reilly around how the generative NL NLP models work or the LLMs work. So I think it's just going to be really fascinating over the next couple of months here to see how this really firms up of like how enterprises are going to use generative AI, like what are they going to try to pilot first, I think is going to be a really interesting piece that we find out in the next couple of months here. And then also how are they going to like get their heads around it? How are they going to teach their, you know, their uh, workforce, how to use this stuff? I think it'll just be a very interesting 
uh, next couple months to a year here around how generative AI kind of comes into the market and into the world. Great. Some wild times to start a podcast. I think this was a fantastic episode four. Thank you everybody for listening. Uh, obviously you can listen or die by going to our website, getalineai.com. You can subscribe or die on any of the places that you listen to podcasts. And we will see you again on episode five. This is AI or die. Reagan, Brendan, thank you as always. And that's a wrap for episode four. Thanks everybody.